0: fixed on him, in his name I pray, amen. In the spring of 2020, right in the heart of the COVID lockdown, right when things had all shut down all over the world, there was a pastor in London who would, on a regular basis, stand outside local hospitals. He would go around to different hospitals in the city and he would stand outside local hospitals and he would carry these big loudspeakers and hook his phone up to it, and he would blare amazing grace really loud for the doctors and nurses in the hospital to hear, the doctors and nurses that were laboring day after day, night after night to help people that were, were dealing with COVID. In 2015, former President Barack Obama spoke at the funeral service of Clementa Pickney, who was killed at her church, along with nine other people in Charleston, South Carolina. And while he was speaking, At that funeral service, he paused in the middle of his speech and sang "Amazing Grace" with everyone that was there. In 2001, at memorial services for the victims of the 9/11 terrorist attacks in our country, families and communities all over our country got together at these services and they sang "Amazing Grace." In 1970 singer Judy Collins was looking for a way to unite the American people in the midst of the tension of the the Vietnam War era. And so at her concerts, she decided to start singing Amazing Grace. And everyone would sing with her. In the 1960s, for Martin Luther King Jr. and other leaders of the Civil Rights Movement, Amazing Grace was an anthem of their efforts to bring equality and justice to our country. The song Amazing Grace can be heard at gatherings of all kinds. It's been heard in church services, it's been heard in prisons, it's been heard in weddings and at funerals. It's been sung at sporting events and ceremonies of national mourning. And it's been sung by people of all kinds, all different languages in all different countries. It's one of the most recorded songs in the history of music. It's been recorded by, just to name a few people, and you just think of the spectrum of people I'm about to list off. Everyone in this room is going to know at least one of the people I mentioned. It's been recorded by Mahalia Jackson, Jim Neighbors, Rod Stewart, Elvis, Aretha Franklin, Diana Ross, Dolly Parton, David Hasselhoff, recorded it, Alan Jackson, Carrie Underwood and Beyonce. One author estimates that the song Amazing Grace is sung at least 10 million times a year around the world. It's a hugely popular song, so much so that we could, we could go into Walmart right now and we could just grab 10 random people and all get together out in the parking lot and say, all right, we're gonna sing Amazing Grace. And once everybody kind of pushed through the awkwardness and weirdness of that moment as you grabbed them out of Walmart, everyone would at least be able to sing the first verse of Amazing Grace or at least know the tune. But before 2023, before 2020, before 2015, before the 1960s and 50s, before Carrie Underwood or Aretha Franklin or Elvis, even before the Declaration of Independence, It was a cold winter day in this small town of Olney in England, and the year was 1773. In the town of Olney, you'll see a picture of the town today on the screen. That's what it looks like today, beautiful English countryside town. In the town of Olney, there was a man named John Newton. And John Newton was a pastor in Olney. He was pastor of St. Peter and St. Paul Church. This is a picture of the church today. He was working on a sermon for New Year's Day to preach to his people. And he had recently started this practice of writing songs that would help his church better understand the verses he was preaching from. And he sat in the study of his house in Olney. This is a picture of the house, what the house looked like when he lived in it. Here's a picture of it today. It was just recently for sale, 1.4 million pounds. Pretty chump change, right? Not a big deal. About $1.6 million. So if anybody wants to, if anybody has about a million and a half dollars, I'll throw in 20 bucks. We go in together on it. It'd be awesome. I'd love to own that house. But you can see in the picture, the, the first floor, second story, and you can see the windows in the attic. The window on the right was the window of his study. And he sat in that room as he was thinking about his people, his church, thinking about what he was going to preach for them on the new year. And he wrote a song that at the time was titled Faith's Review and Expectation. And it's a song we know today as Amazing Grace. The six verses we sang this morning, because some of you were singing the song and you were like, that song was Amazing Grace, but then it became not Amazing Grace anymore. The six verses we sang this morning were the original verses that John Newton wrote when he wrote that song. We'll talk more in coming weeks on how the song was changed. And we don't know the original tune to the song. This tune that we sang this morning was not the original tune. But this year, Amazing Grace turns 250 years old. January 1st, 1773, now January 2023. No other hymn has had the longevity or popularity that Amazing Grace has had. And while Amazing Grace is a well-known song, It's not automatically a well understood song. It would be a mistake for us to enjoy the melody of the song or maybe the memories that song brings up in your head, but not understand what the song means. That's why over the next few weeks, we're gonna learn more about the meaning of this song. And not just for the sake of a history lesson, we'll learn more about John Newton and his life and what led him to write the song and how it's transcended the world since then but we wanna learn more about it because better understanding this song will help us better understand ourselves and most of all, it will help us better understand the Lord and who he is and what it means to follow him. So over the next few weeks, I'd like to highlight each verse of the song, but today we'll do a kind of a 30,000 foot flyover of what was going on when this song was written because when John Newton wrote this hymn, he was reading and preparing to preach from 1 Chronicles 17 the passage that has been shaping our worship service this morning. So go ahead and turn there with me if you have a Bible. First Chronicles chapter 17. If you want to use those blue Bibles in front of you, it's on page 348. 348. First Chronicles 17. 1 Chronicles 17, and as we come into this chapter, we're gonna look at just one half of the chapter. But both this chapter and the hymn Amazing Grace call us to look in three different directions. This chapter, and then from this chapter, the hymn call us to look back in the past, call us to look around in the present, and call us to look forward to the future. Look back, look around, look forward. As we go through this, look for connections to the words of Amazing Grace. And I'll point them out a little bit as we go as well. But let's let's start with looking back, looking back. John Newton had a habit, had a rhythm, a tradition. At the beginning of every new year, he would carve out time to look back over the past year and look forward over the next year. And he would look back and see what the Lord did in his life in the past year and look forward and dream about what the Lord might do in his life in the coming year. And he used this phrase a lot and you can see it in his his journals that he's written and even some of the sermons that he's preached. Past mercies and future hopes is how he would talk. Past mercies and future hopes. Praising God for past mercies, asking him for future hope. This is why the hymn was originally called Faith's Review and Expectation. Review in the past, expectations for the future. Face review and expectation. But all of this was inspired by what we see the Lord doing in King David's life in 1 Chronicles 17. The book of Chronicles is a book that retells the history of the people of God. And 1 Chronicles 17 is actually a retelling of 2 Samuel chapter seven, when God makes a covenant with King David. David has this newly built, king's palace that he lives in, and it feels wrong to him that he lives in this palace, but the ark of God, the the visible symbol of God's presence on earth at that time, that the ark of God doesn't have a house. It doesn't have some nice building to be in. And David says, I want to build a house for the the Lord, for the ark. And the Lord tells David, there's going to be building that happens, but you're not going to be building it. Your son's going to build it a temple for me. And even more, the Lord tells David, I'm going to be the builder. I'm going to build your house, David. And when the Lord says, I'm going to build your house to David, he's not necessarily, he's not talking about a physical structure. He's talking about his family line. I'm going to build your family tree to the point that someone, someone from your family line is going to rule and reign over God's people forever. This is an incredible promise to David. This is a promise that God made to no one else but to David. And when God makes this promise to David, it causes him to look back with gratitude to God. And here's where we see that. Chapter 17, look with me at verse 16. Here's David's prayer back to the Lord in response to this promise. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. And he said, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? As David sits in God's presence, he is in complete awe that the Lord would choose to work this way in his life. You can hear the wonder in what he says. He says, who am I? And what is my house? Why us? Not a a negative why us that that we hear or maybe say a lot, but a, a positive one. What have I done to deserve this, Lord? Why have you made such an incredible promise to me and to my family? And the answer to that question is nothing. You haven't done anything to deserve this. David doesn't deserve God's grace and goodness in this way because all that's happening in David's life is a result of the Lord's work. And the Lord tells David this. Look with me back, same chapter, but jump back to verse seven. Look what the Lord says to David. Chapter 17, verse seven. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant, David. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Here's what he says. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be prince over my people, Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make, you a, I will make for you a name like the name of the great ones of the earth. The Lord leads David to look back, to review the past and see how far God's grace and mercy has brought him. And what's interesting here is that when David looks back, he doesn't look back in a way that makes him think bigger thoughts about himself. He doesn't say, yeah, I was just a shepherd boy and the Lord has brought me and now I'm king over Israel. I'm a pretty incredible guy. It's not what he says. That's not his his conclusion. That's not the thought that he comes to. Look what he says in verse 20. You heard this earlier at the beginning of our service. David says, there's none like you, O Lord. There's no God besides you. According to all that we have heard with our ears, and who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making for yourself a name for great and awesome things, and driving out nations before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. And you made your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. So David's looking back doesn't make him think bigger thoughts about himself. It makes him think bigger thoughts about the Lord. He sees that he's a small part of a larger work the Lord is doing in the universe. When you look back, when you review the past, recent past, long-term past of your life, do you look back in a way that causes you to say, there is none like you, O Lord? When you look back, do you see things that cause you to say, there is no God besides you? Not because of good circumstances. David couldn't look back and see only good circumstances. But he could look back and see a good and faithful God over and over and over. Maybe you look back through tears of sadness, maybe through tears of joy. Maybe you look back on the past with pain or with gladness. Maybe you look back with a mixture of all those things, but either way we can all look back with a deep security that the Lord is God and there is no other. None of us have the same role David did in the story of God's people. None of us are called to be king of God's people. But all of us, every single person in this this room, whether you have trusted in Christ or not, whether you want to be here or not, all of us live under the gracious plan of the same God that was speaking to David in this chapter. And anyone that has a saving relationship with Jesus, you could hear similar words from the Lord. The Lord said to David, I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep to be prince over my people Israel. If, you, if anyone in this room, if any of you have trusted Christ, you could hear the Lord say, I took you from a life of rebellion, from following the ways of the world, to be part of the rescued people of God. And we should all respond with grateful hearts like David did and say, who am I, Lord? None of us deserved it. None of us asked for it. None of us earned it. And you can hear hints of John Newton's first line in Amazing Grace, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. So take a few moments here to to look back. Look back on the past year, look back on the past six months. Looking back is hard because it feels kind of inefficient. Like the past is the past, we can't change it, so let's just move forward, let's just keep going. But take a few moments, to just think on recent weeks, recent months, the past year of your life. Do you see God as the central figure in your past? When you look back on your past, who's at the center? Is it the Lord, or yourself, or someone else? Is your view of the past, characterized more by nostalgia or regret or is it characterized more by God's mercy and faithfulness and seeing his mercy and faithfulness to you over and over? David doesn't just look back, he also looks around at where he is in life right now. Looking around at the present and you can see a glimpse of this even in what David says in verse 16. Look with me again at chapter 17, verse 16. There's a little bit of past and present mixed in here. Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house? And here's the present, that you have brought me thus far. Who am I that I am at this place in life right now? Who am I that I am where I am today? David acknowledges that his current place in life was carried out by God, was carried out by God's plans and purposes, He says, Lord, you have put me where I am. My present is shaped by your purposes, Lord, is what he says to him. And he expands on this down in verse 23. Jump down there with me. Chapter 17, verse 23. And now, O Lord, now, in the present, today, now, O Lord, let the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house Be established forever, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be established and magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, is Israel's God. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. Verse 25, For you, my God, have revealed to your servant that you will build a house for him. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray before you. What you see in David's prayer here is he trusts God's ability to keep his promises. And the reason he can trust God's ability to keep his promises now, in the present, is because he's looked back and remembered how God has kept his promises in the past. All these things are connected. God, I know you're gonna keep your promises now. I know you're gonna keep keeping your promises in the future because you've always kept your promises in the past. He says, do as you have promised, Lord. Carry it out. Make it happen. This may sound overly basic, but I think it's a truth that we too easily forget. That what we see in David's words here is the truth that he doesn't believe God was only with him in the past. Like, Lord, when you were bringing me up out of, out of just shepherding sheep and you brought me in to be the king in waiting and then now I'm the king, you were with me all, of that, all that whole time. He doesn't see that as the only time the Lord was with him. He doesn't say, Lord, you've brought me through a lot, but I'm on my own now. I got this, I'm good. He doesn't say the best has already happened and God's plans and promises just aren't what they used to be. No, it's actually quite the opposite. He says, God was with me in the past. He's with me now. He's gonna be God of his people forever and he's gonna be with me in the future. God has saved me. He is saving me. He will save me, is what David is saying. There is never a moment in our lives when God is absent. There's never a moment when he is absent. It may not always feel that way to us. I understand that. It may not always look that way, and we may not always think that way, but our feelings and thoughts and circumstances don't determine who God is. He's above our feelings, he's above our thoughts, he's above our circumstances. He is aware of those things, but it's more so he shapes how we view our thoughts and feelings and circumstances rather than them shaping who he is. Because the reality is, the promise that God makes to David here, David wouldn't live to see the fulfillment of it. He died before it happened. The the, the full expression of this promise, but he trusts here that God's going to do what he said he will do. He says in verse 25, you, my God, have revealed to your servant that you will build a house for him. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray before you. You have revealed it. You will do it because you're with me and you're with your people always. The kind of promise and hope and comfort that David receives in the present is not dissimilar from what we see in the New Testament with promises like what Jesus says to his followers in Matthew chapter 28. He says, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then in Philippians chapter 2, the apostle Paul writes, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In light of these kinds of truths, John Newton wrote in Amazing Grace, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. He looked around in the past. He looked around in the present. He looked forward to the future. So look around in your life right now. Present, what's going on in your life right at this moment, your family, your friendships, your job, your current situations, the struggles you have, the things you're excited about, the things you're worried about. Do you see God as the central figure of your present life? Is, when you look at your life right now, just like I asked with the past, I ask with the present, who's in the middle? Who's in the center? Is your view of the present Shaped more by your feelings or by recent success or failure, or is it shaped by the Lord and His presence with you right now? We look back, we see the Lord, we look around, we see the Lord. And David will lead us here at the end to look forward and see the Lord. Look forward. And what David does here is he ends his prayer by looking forward to the future. He's looked back, he's looked around, now he looks forward. Look with me at verse 26 and you'll see what I'm talking about. And now, O Lord, you are God and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now you have been pleased to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever before you. For it is you, O Lord, who have blessed, and it is blessed forever. I love David's words in verse 26. Lord, you are God, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. John Newton, at the very end of the hymn, second to last verse says, the Lord has promised good to me. His word, my hope secures. His word secures my hope. My hope doesn't secure my hope. The strength of my faith doesn't secure my hope. The Lord's good promise secures my hope. Every one of God's promises are good because God is good. And that means it is impossible for him to not do good for his people. It's impossible for the Lord to not do good for his people because it's impossible for him to not be good. He cannot cease to be good. And David has heard God's promise from his word and he has hope as he looks towards the future because of that good promise. Notice some repetition that happens here that's important. In verse 27, you see, now you have been pleased to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever before you for it is you, O Lord, who have blessed, and it is blessed forever. That word forever, maybe you've already picked up on it. It's shown up multiple times already through these verses. Look, look with me back at verse 22. And you have made your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. Verse 23. And now, O Lord, let the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house be established forever. Forever. And do as you have spoken. Verse 24, and your name will be established and magnified forever. Over and over and over, David knows this promise doesn't have a timeline on it. It doesn't have an expiration date on it. This promise is eternal. The goodness of God is eternal because God himself is eternal. God's faithfulness will never cease. His goodness will never fade away. His promises will never expire. He is the everlasting God. He has no end. Therefore, our hope as the people of God has no end to it. At the very end of Amazing Grace, John Newton writes, he will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. And the last verse says, the earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine, but God who called me here below will be forever mine. The reason that this promise held true for David was because ultimately this promise was not about David. The reason this promise held true for David was not because David lived forever, or because his son lived forever, or because his grandson lived forever. None of them did. They all died eventually. But the reason that this promise is true for us today, the reason that the people of God today were on God's mind and heart when he made this promise to David generations and generations ago is because God would raise up a king from David's family tree, just like he said he would. And he raised up a king that would rule forever, and that king's name is Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus came into the world, over and over, people call him the son of David. Joseph, his earthly father, was in the lineage of David. All this time, a king would rise up and then die. A king would come and then die. A king would come and then die. Good kings and bad kings everywhere in between. But then, just like we saw last month in that little city of Bethlehem, There was a a baby boy that was born from the line of David who would come and rule and reign forever. God's promise was never just about an earthly kingdom or an earthly throne. It was about a heavenly kingdom and a heavenly throne. And Jesus, this descendant of David, left his throne in heaven to come to earth to live, to die on a cross, to come back from the dead to graciously save you and me. When God made this promise to David, he had my salvation and your salvation in mind. But after Jesus came back from the dead, he also ascended to heaven where he sits on his throne right now. Just as real, maybe more real in a way you and I can't even fathom yet as you and I are sitting in this room. He is sitting there right now, ruling and reigning from the spot. He's going to sit in forever. None of us know all the moving parts of our future in this life. I don't know what's coming up the rest of today. I don't know what's coming up this week. I don't know what 2023 holds for any of us or myself or this church. But nothing that lies ahead of us can alter the future that Jesus holds. Nothing that lies ahead of us can take him off the spot he's sitting right now you will always be ruling and reigning forever. So look forward to the future for a minute. Dream about this year with me. Things that you want to see happen in your life, things you're asking God to do in your family, things you want to see change, things you want to see stay the same, things we're asking God to do through our church and in our community and other churches here. As we look forward just like with the other questions, who's the central figure as you look forward to the future? When you dream, who's in the middle of your dreams? Are your hopes for the future built on something that won't last or on God who is everlasting? One of the main takeaways for us from 1 Chronicles 17 and from the hymn, Amazing Grace, is that God is central to all of life. The events of 2020, the events of 2015, the events of the 1970s, 60s, 50s, the events of every year that has ever taken place on this earth, God is central to all of them. And he's central to each of our individual lives. We're going to dive more into the details of these verses. there's things I wanna tell you about John Newton. There's things I wanna tell you about the hymn. There's things I wanna talk about, but I just have to hold back one sermon at a time. I'm really excited about it. And I think you will learn about a lot about the Lord from it. But right now, for right now, for today, this chapter, this hymn is a call for all of us, each of us to bow before the Lord as the center of our lives. To bow before the Lord as the king of the universe, as the king, not just over all these massive things, but over each one of our days and each one of our years that he gives us. Everyone in this room is making your life fit around something. You're making whatever it is that's the center, you're making everything else in your life fit around it. What is it? As you look back in the past, as you look around in the present, as you look forward to the future, what is everything rotating around? Whatever it is, it controls what you see when you look back. It controls what you see when you look around. It controls what you see as you look forward. What is central for you? And the beauty of all of this is that by God's amazing grace, all of us, each of us can, like David, like John Newton, like Christians throughout the years that have praised God singing this hymn, we can all build our lives around the Lord. We can all build our lives, give our lives to the God of the past, the God of the present, the God of the future. Because all of this is is seeing God in light of past, present, and future. Seeing our past, present, and future in light of who he is. Because when you build your life around him, When he's the center, when you come to him and say, Lord, you are my God, I am your servant like David does. When you come to him and say, Jesus, I know you lived and died and rose again for me. I am following you day after day for the rest of my life. When you build your life around him, you're gonna look back and you're gonna see his grace. You're gonna look around and you're gonna see his grace everywhere. And you're gonna look forward and you're gonna see his grace as far as the eye can see. Because he's the God of the past, of the present, and of the future. Let's each of us take time to reflect and lay our lives down before him and center our lives on him as we experience his amazing grace together.